You're listening to On the Tape with me, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and Danny Moses. We have a great show lined up for you today, talking markets, rates, the newest meme stock, Robinhood, and crypto. Later, we'll go off the tape with Rick Heitzman, founder and partner at First Mark Capital. So stick around. It's going to be a good one. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. So, Danny, I ask Dan Nathan this all the time. He knows the answer, so I'm going to ask you, why was the market higher this past week? Danny Moses, why? I hate the answer because it was open, but... Because it was open. That's exactly right. Because it was freaking open. And here we are, S&P 500, north of 4,400, NASDAQ all-time highs, yields are going lower, nobody cares about anything. It's good times in August of 2021, Danny Moses. It's madness. It's a shame we're taping here right before the jobs report because it'd be nice to see the mania that's going to ensue as a result of that number tomorrow at 8.30. And I will tell you what we've seen in the last couple of days, just like on an ADP number, on an ISM services number, on a Clarita from the Fed coming out and saying something. I mean, this this is madness. I mean, when you have oil trading in a $6 range. You have rates on the 10-year trading in a 10-bit range. Gold in a $30 range. And the dollar itself, which those are big moves in the dollar. may not look big, but 10 cents in the dollar is a lot. So I can't imagine what we're going to miss on Friday. But volatility is here. It's percolating. But it's you're right. It's not being reflected in people's thirst to just own these stocks. I look at it and say the volatility is in every place but the equity market. And at a certain point, it's going to find its way there. But earlier this week, we saw... Citibank actually said, you know what? I'm making this up a little bit, but no moss for U.S. equities. And then Goldman Sachs, David Costin at Goldman Sachs puts a $4,700 target on the S&P 500, citing lower rates. He's clearly watching Fast Money or listening to On The Tape and all this excess liquidity sloshing around. Clearly, I'm in the city camp, who, by the way, thinks 10-year yields are headed back to 2%. I know where Dan Nathan is, but it's fascinating you can have two pillars of the Wall Street community with two completely different calls on the same exact day. Yeah, you know, something's got to give in the equity market, and either we're going to actually just break out and melt up. And I think you have to think back to last August when we had that head-scratching move, the major indices fueled by, you know, the largest names that remain the largest names, obviously the big tech. If you look at the S&P 500, since we had that, what, three, three and a half percent sell-off in mid-July, and that was the Delta variant sell-off. And it lasted for what, about 48 hours. And we got back to those highs and we've just been going sideways in a very tight range on either side of 4,400 and the S&P 500. So something's going to happen here, guys. We're going to have a little excitement. I think your point, Guy and Danny, that they were seeing a lot of volatility and a lot of other risk assets. It's not been in equities yet. We have seen it in many different groups in equities and different geographies. You know, China's been a bit volatile. I will say this, that the most important thing that I saw this week is that while interest rates, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield did make a new low at 1.15, I think that's a six or seven month low, it really kind of found some footing. And the other thing I think is interesting that even down at those levels, bank stocks stopped going down. And so might we see a weak number in July, as far as the jobs number, Fed speak remains dovish and rates stop going down. And I'm not sure what that means um, at this point. But if rates were to rocket back up, you guys tell me, is that good for equities? I mean, I I don't think so. Um, but again, I think if it's done in the normal course of, quote, business, it could be OK. But I'll say this. there I don't have the list in front of me, but there's stocks that are down 30, 40, 50 percent a day over the last five, seven days of trading. You know, I may not know all of them. Some are small, some are medium size, but a lot of them are retail held and not institutional. So I continue to see some of these meme stocks get pummeled. I know we're going to talk about Robinhood here in a minute, but that's come at the expense, Robinhood, maybe on these accounts of by selling some of these other names that are in there. I mean, GameStop and AMC are down 20% around, so to speak, since the Robinhood went public, which is kind of ironic. But you are seeing earnings miss get punished and fundamentals are going to start to matter at some point, And I think they are now. Well, you had a huge move. I mean, you mentioned some of these meme stocks, and I don't even know what that means. But I got to tell you, General Motors is no meme stock. And 
peak to trough decline. I mean, that stock went from 59.5 down to 51.5-52 in a heartbeat. And still, GM is a viable company. It's an $80 billion company. Stocks shouldn't move like that, in my opinion. So you're not just seeing it in some of these meme names. You're seeing it in some of these major U.S. corporations on guidance. It wasn't necessarily terrible. I just find it interesting that, again, you do have single stock volatility. It just hasn't manifested itself in the VIX, which, by the way, did trade north of 21 for a while. And as we're doing this now, you know, either side of 17 and a half, 18, which I still think is too cheap. Because if we were talking about bond volatility, that's probably twice what equity volatility is right now. Yeah, I guess we sound like a broken record here, but we know. No, I'm not trying to sound like a broken record. I mean, it's just we got to talk about it because it's happening almost on a daily basis. No, I wasn't referring to what you were saying. I was about to say that we know that Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, they make up nearly 25% of the S&P 500 and nearly half of the NASDAQ 100, and they're levitating. They're just hanging out. And even with Amazon, it's sell-off after its earnings last week, and Alphabet is down a little bit from its post-earnings highs, you know, Apple's hanging around. As long as they hang around the rim, the broad markets aren't going anywhere. And that just brings me back, though, to September 2020, when the stock market, the S&P 500, sold off 10% in a straight line from its highs on September 2nd. Apple and Amazon went down 2x that. Okay, They went down 20% in a month. These were two of the largest equities in the world at the time. So the level of complacency is really interesting, Guy. You mentioned the VIX. With the S&P making new highs seemingly every day, the VIX did not make a new low. While it did spend a little time above 20. It's hanging out in the high teens here. And the only thing that really says to me is that a lot of investors with the S&P up 17.5% and some of the things that you guys just mentioned about volatility and other risk asset classes, maybe there's just a little more worry under the surface, at least among institutions. There's an ongoing litmus test, if you want to call it that, in the market right now with, the, with this COVID variant. And that is, we all now know many people that have been vaccinated that have gotten COVID now. But your question to them always is, are you okay? And they say, yeah, I'm okay. You going to the hospital? No, I don't, I don't need to go to the hospital. Like, all right, thanks. I hope you feel better. Bye. Because it's, if there's hospitalizations related to vaccinated people, we'd have a whole different situation on our hands. But we've talked about this before. The people that are managing money and making these decisions are thinking about their Labor Day, August trips to Nantucket right now and, and to the Hamptons and so forth. And they're just watching and hoping that this variant doesn't put people in the hospital that are vaccinated. And whether that's fair or not, that's what the litmus test is right now for the market, I feel like. And if it if it gets progressively worse from here, this Lambda comes in and does something different, we're in a real precarious position here. I agree 100%. I mean, it feels as if the market's discounting it because we lived through it already and it knows what to expect. So the market's not making a big deal out of it. I will tell you, it seems to be a pretty big deal because- you walk around now, at least where I am, people are wearing masks again. People seem a little more hesitant. I mean, it's real in the real world. You know what else is real? Dan mentioned hanging around the rim. Watch what I do here. You know who used to hang around the rim in his college days? He had a decent pro career, a guy named Clark Kellogg. Why do I mention Kellogg? Well, I love Special K. But just let me read something, Danny, because I'm sure you have thoughts on this. Kellogg CEO says, and I quote, Inflation is real, pervasive, and around the world. Let me let me say that one more time. Real, pervasive. I don't know what that means, but I think it means it's it's everywhere and around the world. Thoughts on that? Because it sounds like Kellogg's would know about inflation. Yeah, maybe you're going to be on the cover of the Wheaties box soon, guy. I don't know, but it's definitely here. It is no longer transitory in various parts. It isn't. I don't care what anybody says. There, people are forecasting it. You had Clorox. You've had Procter & Gamble. Now, some of these companies are able to pass on these costs and and they will be passing them on, but it's going to take a little bit of time. But there's still a major issue. And if you look at the ISM services stuff that came out, I mean, if you read, separate those out, the shipping is still a major issue. And that is creating not just a bottleneck, but price increases on getting goods. And if you look at the trade surplus, we are still importing a large amount of this stuff, not exporting it. So there's still issues there. So I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And I'm going to rip off the tape in a little bit on what I think is really going on here, but it's really going to be something that people are going to have to pay attention to. And I know we got Jackson Hole coming up. 
that's going to be the next, quote, big event as things, the doldrums of summer occur. But that's probably the next big market move event past this Friday jobs number tomorrow morning. Yeah, it's kind of hard to contemplate given that Delta is really not going to be in the rearview mirror until after Jackson Hole that the Fed is, is going to hint at some sort of taper or in any meaningful way. So again, I go back to rates. Rates sniffed out the fact that the inflation fears earlier in the spring were not maybe as pervasive as some market participants thought, and they started heading lower. I think there's other reasons you could maybe kind of explain that away. What I think would be pretty fascinating, though, is if that if rates started going higher in the face of more cover, I guess, for the Fed to remain dovish. And I got this question yesterday on our Twitter spaces. And and by the way, everybody, tune in Monday and Wednesdays for Twitter spaces at our Twitter, um, sponsored by CME Group, the sponsor of this podcast. We had Liz Young on from SoFi. And we we're talking about inflation. And Danny just mentioned a CEO or guy just mentioned a CEO who's, who's talking about inflation, that it's here to stay. Man, if you are a CEO and you're reporting earnings and you're seeing that prices are up and you're really trying to contemplate how much you want to pass through through customers, that sort of thing. Of course, you're going to mention inflation. Of course, you're going to say it's pervasive. Of course, you're going to say that you know transitory seems to be longer than maybe what the Fed might think. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's like a mulligan, right? And so, I, you know, I, I struggle with that a little bit. The fact that there's a loud chorus of C-level executives talking about them on their earnings calls. If anything, it just kind of helps tamp down expectations. So that to think, me, that's nothing new. Well, Dan, I, I think it goes back to either pass it on or eat it. And if you eat it, you're going to suffer in your earnings. And I don't think that's a quote, a free pass necessarily, unless you believe it's transitory and things just normalize. But these companies are telling you that they're not, that they see that they they can see that shipping stuff is going to happen for a long time. They can see this stuff. So again, pick your poison. We've talked about this before, either lower earnings, which should mean a lower stock market, although it hasn't yet. But again, some of these names have been hit really hard on these news items that they're making. But it's not like this is just some like new thing, right? We had a trade war for a couple of years. We've had bottlenecks. We've had price increases where companies had to make these sorts of decisions. And, I, and I, I'm just... I get a little frustrated, not with you guys, because I love you guys. I just get a little... No, you get frustrated. I know you're frustrated with me. You can say it. It drives you crazy when I go on these rants about the Fed and stuff. I totally get it. You can rage against the machine, me being the machine. I guess where I just get frustrated is looking at all these charts where people are talking about 24% revenue growth in Q2. Dude, it was down massively in Q2 2020. I'm sick of seeing these charts. I'm sick of looking at it. You know, we, we know that we had this unusual event and we know that there's going to be scars on our economy and the global economy from here on out. But I think in the not so distant future, once this pandemic is in the rearview mirror, I think we're going to kind of get back to some normalized levels and some of the trends in technology and automation and deflationary forces with technology are just going to get right back to it. And they might have actually accelerated during the pandemic. I'm not sure what linear means. I'm not as smart as you, but you know, what's gone up in a straight line has been these healthcare stocks. I mean, Moderna, your Pfizer, Nova. I mean, so many of these companies, if you're looking for a way to play all this, you say, well, wait a second. These stocks have been on a rocket ship. Can you still get in? Listen, maybe Moderna's a little ahead of itself over its skis for you people out there that understand that. But I still think that Big Cap Pharma is the winner of all this. Inflation, no inflation, everything we talked about, the pendulum seems to continue to swing in their favor. And oh, by the way, we've talked about the Moderna uh, on the Fast Money, on this podcast, on so many different things. That stock's going from $60, basically north of 400 in a straight, watch this, Dan, linear fashion. You see what I did there? Linear. On those biotech stocks, Guy, might not be a great sign since part of the playbook is, are we going to have this virus around for years? Are we going to need boosters like flu shot for years? And these stocks are telling you the answer is yes. Um, It's going to become part of our lives going forward. So I see that. And then I want to make one other comment just on some of the um, companies which have reported. I'm so sick and tired of this adjusted EBITDA crap with people taking compensation out of the number. Yeah, Lyft. Guess what? They made money. Oh, but they made money if you would just out stock-based comp, which was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So I'm sure households around the world would love to report their net worth, X their mortgage, X their car loans, and, and so forth. But you just can't do that that way. You know, it's funny, Danny, when that came out, we were on Fast Money and Melissa Lee said, so they were profitable on a adjusted EBITDA basis. And we all just kind of laughed a little bit, right? And her point, and she made a really good point, is like, that is what they guided to. That's what they told you we're going to do. So that was the metric in which they were going to solve to. And investors, they had to get comfortable with it or not. We can sit here and be snarky about it, which we have been. It's a bit goofy when you consider about how old this company 
company is and how much money that they're losing right now. It seems like the pandemic broke these models. I'll say one thing though, you know, going back to big pharma and Moderna, Moderna has gone, what guy broke out at 250 and you actually been calling for that breakout. I don't know if you thought it was going to get to 420 in a straight line in a, in a couple of um, months after the breakout. Um, Pfizer, you know, again, these, these, these boosters are going to be around. I think there's really interesting spread between the XLV, that is the large cap pharma ETF, and the XBI, the biotech ETF. It, that thing is down and out. It's down about 35% from its highs in February. It's trading like a tech stock. And now the XLV is just blown out because I think the realization that these boosters are going to be coming. It seems to me that the XBI could be a good trade here because I have to assume that there's going to be some strategic M&A in the space as some of these companies look past vaccine boosters. I think that's a great call. And look, did I think Moderna would be a $400 stock in August? Absolutely not. I do think, by the way, in five years from now, you're going to be talking about a company that might have a market cap approaching $600, $700 billion. Because, and we've talked about this on the show, on the podcast, their technology, for lack of a better word, is groundbreaking. And I think you're going to see a lot of things, not just this virus, but a lot of things fall under the, the auspices of what Moderna does. But that's neither here nor there. Hey, I want to go back real quickly to another sector, though, that I think is is really kind of catching my eye a little bit. I mentioned it before, you know, interest rates, 10-year U.S. Treasury yield seems to have found a little support here at 115. I think we're trading at 1.2%. And we know that bank stocks have been tracking interest rates lower over the last few months since they made new highs into Q2 earnings or so. What is your guys' take? Because to me, I like to take a look at what some sort of underlying input that a sector trades on and see how the stocks start trading relative to it. So one of the things that really struck me this week, even when we made new lows in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, bank stocks were really firm. They didn't get sloppy. You know, Is that a sort of tell as we get into the fall? I think they're deemed as more like utility stocks at this point, right? A lot of them just increase their dividend. A lot of them just buying back more stock. If we do have another run at this virus, obviously they'll play an integral part in basically being the intermediary for a lot of this funding that's out there. Credit continues to be good. It's a, quote, safe place to hide right now. And so the IPO market until the last few days, and they're gunning it into the kind of the summer slowdown, has been very strong. I know we're going to have a respite now coming on, but I just think that the only risk I see right now, at least short term, would be if Brainerd somehow announced that she is the candidate to run the Fed. Liz Warren has been pushing her. That would be a negative on the margin for banks. But other than that, I don't see really anything negative happening right now in these No, and I agree with you. I think banks have probably bottomed out a little bit. I look at a name like City trading, you know, around 69, 70 bucks. Tangible book in City was $77, according to them, when they reported last quarter. Any time that I've seen over the last couple of years when City trades to about 80, 85% of tangible book, that's been a buying opportunity. And 77 will get us back close to those recent highs. And other names that we talk about from time to time, and Dan points out correctly, are not banks, but sort of fall under the financial umbrella. Blackstone this week made another new all-time high. And and I'll say this again, despite the fact that this stock has basically tripled seemingly over the last year, I still think it has room because this environment that they find themselves in sets up exactly right for everything they're doing. And oh, by the way, that deal with AIG gets into another vertical in a meaningful fashion. So from my eyes, I think Dan is correct. I think banks seem to have bottomed for now. I think there are opportunities for me that come in the form of City and Blackstone, Dan Nathan. You know, in this world we live in, everybody likes to link letters together and make homonyms or synonyms or some some type of nims. And Dan did it with F mega. And I think Jim Cramer created the fang, which again, you know, fantastic, great job by them. But you created one that I think is going to go to the Parthenon of all these synonyms. And Danny, we call that R-O-T-T, which stands for rip off the tape. Why don't you give it to us, Danny? You got it. You guys ever heard of the Misery Index? And no, guy, that was a great movie with James Caan. There he goes, Kathy Bates. What's that woman's name? I can't think of her name. She was in Titanic. What? Yeah, she was. Oh, yeah, she was in Titanic. Yeah, I I just said that, Danny. Yeah, she was. Kathy Bates. Yes. So, the Misery Index was created years ago by an economist named Arthur Okun, and basically it's a measure. You take the unemployment rate and you add inflation to it, and that's your, quote, Misery Index. And let me just clarify here that we're not Venezuela, so that that would be like the highest Misery Index in the world like if you were to do something like that. But the one thing really interesting to me is what's going on in the market right now, which you're getting closer and closer to stagflation. Now, we've had a couple guests on in the past. Sahil Bloom has talked about it. He actually, last September, September 2020, did a whole 
riff on it on Twitter, which was a great read if anyone wants to go back and read that. And Peter Bookvar, who we had on, has talked about ad nauseum, and we've talked about it on this show. And what's really interesting to me is that people don't even realize what they're rooting for. But these data points that we see, oh, ADP bad. Oh, good. That's good for the market. Oh, inflation, just a little bit, but not too much. Based on the Fed mandate of not caring about inflation, but caring about employment or vice versa, or having to have both to actually raise rates, they are setting this up for stagflation. So just for people out there, just just as a reminder what it is, it's recession with inflation, basically, is what it is. Inflation high, economic growth rate slows, and your unemployment remains high. So if GDP slows, guys, is that good? I mean, it's not great for the market, obviously, where the market is on a PE basis, but it's something to keep an eye on. You're going to hear more and more about this, I promise, over the next couple months. And if that is the case, we are the market will go down. I will say this inevitably. If we, if we get through a period of time where we have high inflation and slow growth, or high or employment does not start to improve, and we're going to get a look at that tomorrow, then we're going to have stagflation and, and the market will not trade well. Never in the history of the markets has it trade well during a stagflationary period. That's my rip. This rot's been brought to you by Russell Okung, apparently, who's been taking Arthur his Okun. pay. Arthur Okung. Oh, Arthur Okung. I thought yeah. it was a guy that plays football that's taking his pay in Bitcoin. You know what else you ripped off the tape recently about was the Robin Hood, which obviously has been in the news this week as well. I mean, it's as Robin Hood... Again, I don't know what a meme stock is. I don't really get it. But I will tell you, the moves in Robinhood this week were ridiculous. And oh, by the way, at one point, it was more than half the market cap of Goldman Sachs. I'll take Goldman Sachs every day of the week, including Sundays and holidays, over the Robinhood. Yet the market seems to think that they've invented something that, quite frankly, I don't see. What's interesting, by the way, the first thing that I've seen that people actually misunderstood that I think wasn't fair for the stock to get punished this week was the registration of these shares for these selling shareholders. And just to be clear what that was, they had to get bailed out, basically, if everybody remembers. They basically got margin called, Robinhood did, and they had to put up capital. They had to put up a billion dollars. They ended up raising $3.4 billion in a convert in late January or early February. And that convert had a condition in it that those shares would price at a 30% discount to wherever the IPO price. The IPO price at 38 this cost for these people that are converting is 27, by the way. And it was a large group of them. But this was an automatic conversion. So it was something that should have been expected and people misinterpreted it. That being said, I mean, the fact that options started trading on it, that kind of fueled the fire yesterday. Good old Kathy Wood is coming in, you know, to give it the seal of approval. But the infrastructure bill has some things in it that are potentially positive for crypto trading. So there's another little piece. But Dan, I know to your point, I know you've talked about this. Other memes are kind of other meme stocks are out there suffering a little bit right now at the hands of this deal potentially. But I'm not a believer in this thing longer term. I still believe that the payment for order flow is a major issue for the company. And unless they can come up with some other products to cross-sell onto the platform, I'm still very wary of it here. Before Dan jumps in, let me ask you one question. If payment for order flow goes away, does Robinhood go away? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. What do you think, Danny? I mean, it turns into just an arrow. It'll be around, but it'll get hit. There's other things that'll get hit too. That won't be the only stock that gets pummeled on it, but that would be a major deal, yes. If that were to shift, they would have some issues for sure. It's beautiful irony that the meme stock machine became a meme stock right out of the gate. And you know, to your point, Danny, about the size of this company now in market cap terms is pretty fascinating. The fact that the memers or whoever were pushing it higher on Wednesday, the stock at one point was up, what, what 70, 80% or something like that. That's serious market cap. I think the market cap got close to $70 billion. And when this meme stock thing started back in January with GameStop, I think that was like a single digit billion market cap, right? And it never got that high. And then they moved on to AMC. And I think that thing got to about 30 billion. And to your point, when Robinhood was just raging the other day, those stocks got killed. And it tells you that there's direct correlation, this money, there's only, there is a finite amount of money willing to play this game. And so, you know, any other news, Danny's done a really nice job over the last couple of months, kind of highlighting just some of the issues with, with their business models, some of the regulatory issues, some of the fines, the fact that regulators are going to be all over this. And we don't know how this shakes out. But I think when you look at the average account size at Robinhood, this is more of a gambling app than it is an investing app. And so let's see what they're able to do. Let's see if they're going to add on some other services and and, and make it less of this kind of gamified stock trading social platform, because I'm not sure that that is something that commands a $50 billion market cap, in my opinion. You know, it's nice to have a former SEC commissioner, Gallagher, as your chief legal officer. Let's not forget that, that he's there, so they have that conduit. But we've seen something really interesting in the last several months, and that's 
the lack of correlation between Bitcoin and crypto and the stock market to a degree. But I think more and more it's converging a little bit. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I do believe that because of the Robinhood account base, which has grown dramatically over the last year, they own crypto, they own stocks. There's starting to be a little bit more correlation. We're going to have Rick Heitzman on a little while. I'm sure he has some thoughts on this as well. And we've gone probably 30 minutes now. We haven't mentioned one one word. Dan, do you know what that word is that we haven't mentioned? It exorcise. When you say it, it makes Danny break out in hives. Anybody want to guess? Because if you don't, I'll just jump in here. Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Nobody? Tesla! Tesla! Oh. Come on, Danny Moses. No. EV vehicles, man. Tesla is killing it. You can't even, you can't run <laughs> from it. I mean, they are taking over the world. The stock has recovered. Thoughts? Let me get my therapist in here for a second. No, um, well, thoughts on Tesla in general. Let me just highlight what happened today was the White House gathering all the auto companies in the U.S. to talk about a plan to make all new sales of autos, at least 50% of them electric by 2030. There was one known absence, and that was Elon Musk. Maybe it's because he's a really China-based company. Maybe it's because he's, he's pissed them off too much. I'm not sure. But let me just say something about he tweeted today on something which I think is relevant. So on the last quarterly call, he said, I don't plan to be on future calls. People are like, huh? Well, the three-year anniversary of him being basically having to step down as chairman, his settlement for his funding secured nonsense with the SEC, is up when? September 29th, 2021. What else did he mention in a tweet? He mentioned that Walter Isaacson is writing a biography on him. Who are the other people that Walter Isaacson has written biographies about? Uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Albert Einstein. Ben Franklin. Steve Jobs. Which one of these people, and I add Elon Musk, does not belong? I would say Musk. Why? Musk actually referenced how much he enjoyed Walter Isaacson's book about Ben Franklin. But here's two Ben Franklin quotes that are the opposite of Elon Musk. One, better to slip with the foot than the tongue. Well, you didn't listen. You didn't listen to that one, Elon. And the second one is love your enemies for they tell you your faults. He hates his enemies. He jumps all over them. So I think it's interesting. I do think it's telling. I believe he is going to be stepping down as CEO. I don't think I'm saying anything dramatic here. I think he's kind of made that clear. He has other projects he wants to work on, and he probably will come back and be chairman since he will be allowed to be September 29th of 2021. But, you know, wait and see what happens. I actually think it would be a positive for Tesla, the stock, if uh, Mr. Musk were to step down. I'm probably in the minority on that one, but I'll, I'll stand by. Guy, guy, hold on a second. Guy, I've agreed with you on 99.9% of everything except- So the, here's the point so, one. Yeah, this is uh, this is point one. I disagree with you. That would be an unmasking. Listen, you're probably right. If there were a great unmask, you're right. But I would think if somebody- Listen, you're probably right. If there were a great unmask, you're right. But I would think if somebody, if somebody with some chops on the CEO front came in and cleaned things up in terms of their communiques and those types of things, I think the market might take that positive. But as they say- that's what makes markets. Another Kathy Bates film there, Danny Moses. She got an uncredited role, but she was in a civil action. I believe John Travolta, the great John Travolta, was in that movie. Why do I bring that up? Because my man Gary Gensler is going to come in and kick some ass here. What are your thoughts on Gary Gensler? He made some pretty interesting comments on the Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, people are begging for him to basically start approving these ETFs. And there's two securities acts it's always referenced, the 1933 one and the 1941. And all you need to know that if you get the 1933 one that applies to this, you can do an ETF for Bitcoin. A 1940 means it should be mutual fund. So Gensler's pointing towards the 1940s. Why? Because... Mutual fund can be closed-ended, and ETFs cannot be. And if you have an open-ended ETF without a secure kind of system on the back end, Gensler's concerned. He's trying to protect people. But he actually made comments when after stablecoins. And I keep telling people, and I, I ripped off the tape on it many times about this tether, not enough people talking about what this will do potentially to regulation, and Gensler basically said that. So listen, it's a huge positive if you take a step back into the, the chairman, of, you know, the chairman of the SEC is is actually looking to legitimize crypto in a way. So it's a positive. Will the ETF's approval come? Maybe eventually, but it looks like people didn't get everything that they wanted. But it's really interesting that I and this is obviously going to be going on for some time. Yeah, crypto Twitter seemed to be relatively okay with what Gensler had to say there, and you'd see Bitcoin trading down much worse than it has. I think it's down, you know, maybe a couple thousand points from 42,000 to 40,000 just in the last kind of day or so. So it's kind of holding its own here. I think that Ethereum 
though. That story seems to be one that's garnered a lot of attention. They had this hard fork, this London fork. And then I think a catalyst that a lot of crypto investors are focused on is this uh, move from proof of work to proof of stake that should take place at the end of this year, early next year. So to me, I think that the bull case for Bitcoin right now is maybe ETFs and, and corporate adoption. And it's really just a better store of value maybe than gold, where Ethereum, when we think about all of these different protocols being built on top of it, DeFi and NFTs and all this other stuff, I, I think that you know you get to this deflationary place for the currency and people see like greater scarcity and they see greater things being built on it. So to me, I think uh, Ethereum looks pretty interesting here, remains interesting here. Yeah, Dan, I would, I would add to that, that I think the more that these coins, these altcoins come out of favor and the more that these tokens come out of favor, the more, if you want exposure to the sector, it's through Ethereum and Bitcoin. The same way that I think money has left Chinese stock market to a degree and found its way probably over here to a degree. I just think it's the cream rising to the top, so to speak, about what's the safest way to express your viewpoints. Somebody I would like to curry favor with going forward is the aforementioned Gary Gensler. You sort of want him on your good side. So I think we should invite him to go off the tape with us. But somebody we did invite and accepted is the great Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital when we come back. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Rick Heitzman is a founder and partner of FirstMark Capital, an early-stage venture capital firm where he's led investments in market leaders like Pinterest, Airbnb, StubHub, and DraftKings. Prior to FirstMark, Rick served as a partner at Pequot and was a founding member of the senior management team at First Advantage. For the past two years, Rick was named one of the world's top venture capitalists on Forbes' Midas list. He's also an investor of Risk Reversal Media, the parent company of On The Tape. Rick, great to have you on the show. So, Rick, unbelievable. I, you know, of all the many accomplishments, the one that sticks out to me, and there are many, what was it like being named to the Forbes Midas list for venture capitalists? I mean, that is pretty badass, if you ask me. Thanks, Guy. It was pretty amazing. You know, it's really the one list that is not arbitrary, is not for the head boppers. It's really based on quantitative analysis, as well as based on a little bit of checking you out with your peers. What have you done? And does it make sense? And do your peers know and respect you? So it's something that uh, a lot of people in our industry work hard at a long time. Yeah, I've been fortunate. I've been on it a couple of times, but uh, it's something really to look forward to. Well, let me ask you about being fortunate because you're, there's a lot of humility in that answer, the word fortunate. You make your own luck to a certain degree. And you know, you've had an incredible career at a very young age. You know, why do you think and you have a great team around you at First Mark. Dan and I can speak firsthand about that. Why do you think you've been so successful? What's sort of the things that you've done that other people have not been able to do for whatever reason? I appreciate you saying at a very young age. I'm, I'm pushing that a little bit, but uh, it still feels good. Someone asked me this question the other day, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have some people that I'm mentoring and folks I spend time with that I care about. They ask, what piece of advice could you take with me? What piece of advice would you give to a graduate? And it's that you have agency over yourself and your own life, that you can determine your own path and you have to figure out what you're willing to do to get from here to there. So you know, most people listening to this have enough born on at least second base in terms of oftentimes being born in a first world country, having access to education, and therefore you can kind of do what you want. And it's being able to understand that you have agency to do that and that you have the ambition to take advantage of that. You know, Rick, uh, Guy and I first met you on the set of Fast Money. I think it was like November 2013. And it was funny because back then we did not have a whole heck of a lot of venture capitalists coming on the show to talk about private markets. But 
Twitter had just gone public, and I think the Deco isn't that what they call a guy the Deco, the thing that runs underneath you. The lower third. Oh, the lower third. The lower third said the next internet company to go public, and I think that's funny in hindsight because I don't think they call them internet companies anymore. But we were talking about Pinterest. You were coming on in 2013 to talk about Pinterest, and this kind of I think leads a little bit to that Midas list in a way. What did you see in some of these massive internet platforms back then, and what do you see now? Because all these companies, there's been a rush over the last couple of years to come public, obviously. And so how has the investment landscape in new media or new technology changed in, in the last 10 years or so? 10 years ago, you were a bit contrarian if you were betting on digital. You were a bit contrarian that these platforms, whether they be social platforms, communication platforms, or, or even call it next generation media platforms, if you thought that was going to be the dominant way that people are going to consume media. And to be right in our business, you have to be not only correct, but contrarian in order to hit a big win. Because if you're just a lemming following what everybody else does, you're either going to get priced out of it or it's going to be too obvious so the market won't work with you. So, you know, as we thought about things and opportunities, especially in media like Pinterest, we thought about is it obvious or non-obvious at the time? And do we know something or believe in something that others don't? And at the time, it was, hey, people are inherently social, and they're going to want to share what they want to buy, and they're going to want to understand how to curate of all the things on the internet, how to curate what you want to buy, and that's got to be through two groups of folks, experts and your friends. And the internet was only getting bigger, and the amount of stuff that you could buy was only increasing exponentially. And we were early investors in Shopify, and we were seeing the beginning of this direct-to-consumer revolution and the growth of entrepreneurism and digital commerce. And we said, this is only going to expand, but how do I know what I should buy? It's, it's the way it always was. You know, are there experts who, who are tastemakers that you could follow? And it's your social circle. Who thinks what else is out there? And, you know, it was early. And I think even at the time in 2013, when it was a little bit more rare, an early unicorn. And folks were saying, hey, is this the beginning of the end? This is this is the end of the digital boom by the end of 2013, that if Pinterest is going to be worth a billion dollars. And we thought it was early in the cycle. And, you know, the ability to hang on and push forward and continue to support the company has made all the difference. We share a few things in common. We both breathe oxygen, last I looked at least. We both attended Georgetown University. And the third is we both have a love of the New York Yankees. I mentioned that because the Yankees are just loaded with swing and miss guys. And listen, you've had some amazing hits in terms of the companies you've been behind. But I'm also sure there's been some caught lookings. In other words, things that you didn't t- take the bat off your shoulder for. And I think people would just be interested in that, not because it's a failure by any stretch, but because it's interesting. Even the best out there make mistakes. Can you sort of speak to that, Rick? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've failed as much as anyone. I've, I've for, fortunate enough to have a long career where I've seen a lot of things at the earliest times and either made bad decisions for doing them or bad decisions for not doing them. I remember, and I'll go a little bit further in the Wayback Machine, um, that I was in a board meeting and I was sitting next to two folks who had just invested in a Series A company. It was uh, in 2000, I think in 2001, and they were saying, hey, we have this company. And I said, well, does it have any revenue? And they said, no, it doesn't have any revenue. Well, what had the entrepreneurs done before? They just kind of dropped out of school. Well, is it a competitive market space? Are they doing something completely different? Well, no, there's a lot of competitors out there. You know, is there uh, there a way to go to market directly to consumer? Well, right now we're just going to market directly through two channels, uh, AOL and Yahoo. But we want it to be valued at, at $150 million. And we have no revenue, no team, no real traction, but we think it's worth $150 million. And I smiled and was very polite and said, yeah, but let let, let me think about it. I don't want to go and meet the guys in the Palo Alto garage. I'm going to try and catch a flight out of here. So therefore, I was uh, I missed out on Google. And, you know, it was early and, you know, they saw something I didn't see. And I was probably too dismissive out of out of hand. 
Well, you would have been 30 under 30, I guess, if that was the case. But, you know, yeah. all, all, you know, like a fine wine, uh, Rick. It's interesting, going back to some of the names that you had mentioned, though, that you were fortunate to see at a very early stage. I'm just looking at the list of your portfolio companies. It's just an amazing list of now publicly traded companies, Airbnb, Pinterest, DraftKings. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. You mentioned Shopify. When you think about it, these are hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap. And you and I have talked about this in the past, and I think one of the reasons why you're such a unique voice when you come on Fast Money with us is that not only can you talk about what it takes to be a very successful investor in early stage tech, but you've also seen them through a life cycle in a way. And talk to us a little bit about what is it like to see these exits when these companies go public and then you remain along them? How does your investment thesis change? Is there a bit more of a, a risk management bent to it? And does it take a lot of your time, you know, focusing on a lot of these names that are public? No, we, we have to think about those because obviously they tend to be our biggest winners. They tend to be a disproportionate share of our funds. And, you know, we tend to have LPs who are, are tremendously supportive but they know we're primarily private market investors. And therefore, as these things enter the, the public markets, should we just you know, cash in, take, accept our win and move on? We still believe and we, we still kind of actively manage things in the public market for two reasons. That oftentimes we understand the cycle of that industry maybe a little bit better than even the public markets. So if you think about you know, how maybe DraftKings has evolved and, and we think it's still early first or second inning, no pun intended, in the sports gaming space. And then you know, do we know something about monetization? And obviously not in anything non-public, but just as the world's evolving in something like a Pinterest and seeing how that company was growing and spreading and monetization was increasing. And that really matters. And the other thing we always think Every time we've deviated from this, we've missed. And every time we've underappreciated, we've also missed. Is just entrepreneurs who really understand their space, really understand their product, and have incredibly high integrity. So our ability to stay with them over time, you know, people like Toby from Shopify or Ben from Pinterest, and they're great stewards of capital, let them continue to execute, put out a great product, and, and just ride that wave. All right. So talk to us a little bit about your foray into the SPAC market last year, first mark. I think you were one of the first VC firms to launch a SPAC. You and I talked about it at the time. I think you came on Fast Money to talk about it. You were calling it a sort of full stack, right? From early investment um, all the way through the life cycle of a company and, and having the tools in place to actually take them public yourself. I mean, talk to us a little bit about that, how that came about. And do you think that this is a model that's going to be here to stay in VC. So uh, let me unpack that a little bit at a time. So you know we were at, we had a front row seat for premium companies going public via a SPAC. You know one of the best entrepreneurs who we alluded to before is Jason Robbins, who's the founder and CEO of DraftKings, and you know he had the foresight to be able to say for his path of going public, the SPAC was the best route. You know, he went on to be one of the best performing SPACs and obviously has done a fantastic job as CEO of DraftKings. And being able to see that journey and understand why a SPAC, what companies it makes sense for, and why companies could go public in any way might choose a SPAC gave us a particular insight we thought maybe a little bit ahead of the market. So we were probably about a year ago uh, at a time where most people didn't know what a SPAC was. We were leaning in and going public as one of the first VC firms to do it. And what we did was we kind of branded ourselves full stack and full service. And it's really talks about what we do and how we do it. Full stack is we've invested with companies all the way down to kind of sub million dollar initial checks, seed round, just getting started, all the way now taking them into the public market. So we could be your comprehensive partner through that stage your first call and your partner of record during that process. But in addition to that, we know that there's only so much you could do for a company. So how do we provide a number of services to better service those entrepreneurs, enable them to scale quicker? So it's full service, our full platform of talent, customers, et cetera, that I think you guys have experienced firsthand is a complete differentiator in the market. And then what we saw, you know, as that SPAC markets evolved, Although we were early, maybe first in the door, 
there was a rush behind us. And, it, and it, you know, it's, it's really been one of the fastest both accelerating markets and decelerating markets that we've seen. And as we think about, you know, that typical hype cycle of product starts, big market, tremendous hype, and then you fall into the trough of disillusionment. I would say that we're now, we're just getting out of the trough of disillusionment. We're seeing companies that we saw as potential SPAC targets in Q1 just beginning to announce or just getting into the SPAC market as the companies, the sponsors, and everybody in the ecosystem had a bit of indigestion from an overly crowded Q1. And we also saw people going public via SPAC who didn't really understand the product or the process. And now I think that, you know, everything's calmed down. You've seen a lot of great companies. We mentioned DraftKings. SoFi is a fantastic company who went public via SPAC. And premium companies are seeing this as a true alternative to enter the public markets, especially when they can do it more of their way. So they have the opportunity to tell their story their way and disclose their financials and some of those things in a, in a more bespoke way. And so companies are kind of rising up to meet us. The pipe market and the issuance market is kind of becoming unclogged. So now moving into what we think is a normalized market, we see uh, a lot of room for this to become a mature product in the next couple quarters and couple of years. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Rick. You said that Dan and I have witnessed this, have experienced it firsthand, and, and that's 100% accurate as first mark is our initial investor. I mean, you were the guys and gals that saw something and you invested in risk reversal media, but it's not just capital, it's everything else. It's resources, it's knowledge base, it's relationships you have. Can you speak to that sort of full service model where it's not just writing a check, it's that's almost the least important thing. It's everything else that you provide at First Mark. I, I appreciate that. I think that's that's the key way that we partner with companies. As a former entrepreneur, usually my investors were, I'll write you a check and then then just push you to see if you hit the numbers or beat you if you didn't. And we view it as a true partnership. There are problems ahead of us. They're all of our problems. And if they're challenges, they're all of our challenges to solve. And we also believe that you can't surround a company with enough love. So being able to have as much love as you can, as many friends as you can, and being able to pull that all together to say, we could really accelerate risk reversal. We could really accelerate Pinterest. If we bring the best human capital and the best people to the table, a little bit of financial capital and a lot of love, that that company will grow bigger and stronger and faster than it normally otherwise would. Going back to DraftKings, just online gambling, I know you guys have had some investments in data mining, business intelligence. What is it? Do you have a team of people? Is it you that finds these trends early on and able to find these things? Because your track record, I'm, I'm sure there's things in there that haven't worked out that I haven't seen, but the majority of it looks like you've really scored big. I'm just curious how you kind of identify and find those. Uh, I think what we try to do is be just a little bit ahead of the curve. Are we seeing something that someone else isn't seeing? In the case of DraftKings, we're very close with the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball, and they were looking for different revenue streams. They were open to the concept of partnering in the medium and long term around a product like this, and they were looking for different revenue streams, and they were looking for partners, and we didn't really see anyone else in the market. So being around customers and knowing what that customer problem or partner problem is is key, and it's the same thing, whether it's consumer and being able to fill a need that creates a tremendous amount of value, whether it's enterprise software, SaaS, it's all being in that market, knowing that market as well as anyone, and then kind of being able to figure out not where the puck is, but maybe where the puck's going to go in the next couple quarters or the next couple of years kind of just gives you a little bit of a break. You know, that one step sometimes you need to beat, to beat the cornerback. Talking about some of these emerging trends, you know, you and I have talked about this a little bit. You know, the way you thought about the Internet 10 or 15 years ago, are you starting to think about crypto that way? Is it likely to be pervasive into a lot of different industries? I know you guys have made some early investments. I know Digital Currency Group and, and Helium, which is one. I'm a user of Helium. So Helium is a decentralized Wi-Fi network. So do you guys have your antennas up? Are you looking for crypto projects to invest in? And is that the next big thing in your opinion? 
We, we are looking for crypto projects. You know, we're in Helium, we're in DCG, we're in Ledger, which is kind of a personal hardware software solution to store your crypto. One of the reasons we like crypto is as an early stage investor, there's asymmetric returns. So with crypto, and we got in, I think originally almost you know seven, eight years ago, what we're able to see is you could see a path where if you can imagine a future that you could see 10, 100 times your money, but you know the good thing in venture capital is you can only lose 100% of your basis. So if you think about what you know what could go right and how to create a hundred times return, you know therefore you feel comfortable being able to lose a lot of your money a lot of the time. So crypto is definitely a space, although I wouldn't say early anymore, maybe mid mid market or mid stage where there's still an asymmetry of potential returns, which keeps us incredibly interested. Rick, I know you guys had an investment in Riot Games, which I think was taken by Tencent. And uh, you're obviously familiar with what's going on over in China. We'd love to get your thoughts if you think this is an overreaction, if you think China kind of turns down the volume a little bit here. China has kind of come out and said, hey, we just want to make sure everybody knows who's in charge. And, and whether it's you know small things like the anti-compulsion laws in the video game sector, limiting amount of time and times that you know people can play video games there. I, I think the latest is is four hours a day and between the hours of eight a.m. and ten p.m. So you know you don't have kids staying up all night or playing all day. But I think what they're telling folks there is, hey, we just want to make sure even if companies like Tencent or one of the 10 biggest companies in the history of the world, we know who's in charge. And I think you're going to see a little bit of that and it'll play out over time. As as first mark, we, we don't have anything currently existing in China and we're not experts on the space. So we probably wouldn't get too deep into that at this point, but it's definitely interesting to watch. Valuations always matter. I don't care what anybody says. You know, you read a lot lately, valuations don't matter in this environment, but they do. My question to you, Rick, is you have to be disciplined regardless, but how difficult do you find making investment decisions, competing against so many other folks out there, given the fact that there's so much money sloshing around and given the fact that that money has led to, in some cases, ridiculous valuations? At a certain point, you may love an idea, but it just doesn't make sense at the valuation they're putting forward. And that's the world we face a lot of the time in today's environment. You may love the company, but hate the deal. And we have the benefit and we're not a huge fund and we don't feel like we have to do every deal and chase every car. What we want to do is do a dozen or so great deals every year. And therefore, you can walk away from a lot. You have the discipline to say, hey, I really like this founder. I really like this company, but I really dislike, you know, one of those two things or even the deal dynamics. And it's, it's, it's awfully hard but, you know, it's just part of being here that, you know, you're able to say we're staying disciplined. We're going to continue to invest through the cycle, but we don't have to chase every car. You know, Rick, you mentioned before just the asymmetric nature of crypto investments. And, and you talked about, you know, in venture, you, you know, you can't lose more than what you put into it. I think the first half of 2021, there was nearly $300 billion in, in venture funding globally here. And I just want to get your take. This has been an amazing run for venture. And if you think about it since the financial crisis, I mean, interest rates have been artificially low for a long time. They're, they're very near year zero. How, how much does that play into this boom that you think? just with rates where they are? And do you think there's risk if rates were to go up precipitously in the next year or two? I definitely think rates are key. People are chasing anything that will give them alpha. And, you know, if you look at, you know, back when we were in school, people looked at their allocation of 30% bonds, 60% stocks, 10% cash. And, you know, what you've seen is there's no reason to participate in the fixed income markets really over the last 10 or so years. So eventually that's melted to stocks. And then even in stocks, folks are looking for ways to get some alpha. And the ways that you know people are getting alpha is going earlier and earlier in the company formation cycle. So that's not only public markets, but crossover investing, growth equity investing, venture capital, et cetera. So we're seeing the longer the bull market runs, 
the more you're rewarded for going earlier. So it's it's a little bit of a cyclical impact. So I, I think that this will continue for a while. As uh, I think Guy mentioned before, there's a benefit of having patient locked up capital in traditional venture capital funds. So you know we're not no one's going to face redemption if interest rates spike fifty or hundred basis points. But the flip side of that is, you know, as inflation rises, interest rates rise, folks will have more options. You know, if you're a large foundation or a large family office in which to choose to deploy their capital, and as they choose, they might choose venture capital less, and that would just be a little bit lightening of the uh, supply of capital in the market. Rick, it seems like FirstMark has reached a point where it's positive selection versus negative selection. What I mean by that is, Companies want you on their deal. So you're, you're going to get first look at things. And I, I want to shift this to Robinhood for a second. I know you've, I, I've seen you make some comments on it publicly. You can hate the company, like the deal, you know, all this stuff. Maybe it comes to that. But I think of negative selection. I think about retail investors being stuffed with a with an IPO and having, quote, a chance to invest in it. I'd love to get your thoughts on my, my first comment, how fortunate I think the seat, and you've earned it. But you get to see deals first before someone else. And then secondly, how should retail investors out there really think about, quote, the opportunity to invest in an IPO when it really gets to their desk, so to speak? Yeah, thanks. You know, right now we're very fortunate that we do have a number of serial entrepreneurs. Almost all of our, I think all of our serial entrepreneurs have come back to us and want us to invest. And, and obviously we've built deep relationships with them and we've invested with serial entrepreneurs out of Pinterest and out of Aereo and out of Navic over time. But it was not always like that. As you build a firm, you build a track record, a brand, and a network of folks who want to work with you. But when you start off, you have none of those things and nobody wants to work with you. And going through that building phase, there was always a question when it, you know, it got to our partnership of why are we so lucky? Why are we so lucky that we have access to this deal when there's a, even at the time, you know, a hundred other venture capital firms out there and you want it to be because, oh, I'm a, you're an industry expert in video games or consumer technologies. You went to college with the guy's roommate and therefore you met him, you know him, you have a deep personal relationship Or, you know, they're down the street in New York and they want someone local who could really help them build the business and not because they think you'll pay the highest price. Everybody else said no, all those other reasons. So I think, you know, increasingly so as investors get more sophisticated and companies get more sophisticated about the allocation of of their syndicate, you're going to say, why are you so lucky? And retail investors should wonder why they're so lucky in doing this. I think Robin Hood's intentions were to diversify their cap table and not necessarily to kind of uh, create a meme stock, although it feels like that was inevitable. So, you know, as you're sitting there as an investor, why am I so lucky? And also, what do I know that someone else doesn't know? Do I, you know, what do I know about the future of retail trading and brokerage, you know, sitting here as, you know, someone who might be doing something else compared to professionals who follow, track, know this every day? So, Rick, it's pretty fascinating what you just said. I mean, the meme stock machine became a meme stock through its IPO. It only took a week, which is pretty interesting. And, you know, we've been talking about the gamification of trading. I mean, you know, public markets, that is our expertise here. And, you know, I I struggle to figure out what exactly the innovation that Robinhood has done. I, I know that they've obviously created a very attractive platform and easy on-ramp for um, investors. I don't think the innovation was that they they did free trading, right? I know that that changed some of the dynamics in the market. It made some of their competitors go to zero cost equity trades, that sort of thing. But really the gamification I think is really dangerous. And the fact that when you do a trade in the confetti comes down. And I think there's something very different between um, doing daily fantasy on DraftKings or betting on a game, because I think that's something that people really allocate a certain amount of their you know, discretionary capital to. Um, investing is just a different game, and I worry about the size of the accounts there. Um, so the only innovation I can see is that there's fractional trading, right, that you don't have to buy a share. But the other guys, and you mentioned SoFi before, they were early on that. There's a lot. That was, yep. that was happening. So Help us understand, what do you think the innovation is? You've seen these amazing platforms and all different sort of consumer products just blow up. Does this thing have the potential to be a behemoth or is it just kind of a flash in the pan? So I I think the other innovation 
which we've seen a lot of businesses become successful around is making it social, right? You saw a lot of kids, even I have a teenager, as you know, Dan, and when he was working last summer, everybody was checking their phone on their Robinhood account, even though they were making minimum wage. It became a thing that you could share. It became something to talk about. It became just part of even the, you know, all the way down to teenagers, but definitely 20s and 30s in the zeitgeist of what are you buying? Are you buying options? Which coin are you buying today? And should we both buy the same coin? So I wouldn't say this is a, it was a product innovation, but they did things through gamification, which made it you know, all the more important and all the more fun. So it felt a lot more like more like fun than doing your math homework as a lot of the other uh, platforms make, make it seem. And I think what you're going to see is other people are going to fast follow that. So whether you're Charles Schwab or Fidelity or Public as an emergent player, you know, maybe you don't need the confetti. Maybe you don't need the hot takiness of it, of Robin Hood snacks. But what you do need is a piece of software that feels more like an app on your phone, like a Pinterest, like a Snapchat, and less like your dad's banking software. And you know, you want it to be easy to use. You want it to have a few clicks. You want it to be easily to understand. And you want to have as much of a direct connection as possible. If you think about making it social, getting information directly to the community, you know, public.com has a whole community around SOTS where people can discuss things. Oftentimes, either public company CEOs or soon-to-be public company CEOs join them to discuss their business. And I think both on the investor side of making that product easily accessible and easy to use, as well as on the company side, where companies are going to want more of a direct access to their investor base, I think those are the those are the trends, and I think it'll be less about the confetti and more about usability and communication than it has been in the past. You know, I think the innovation was allowing anybody to be able to download an app and trade on the spot. I don't think that's necessarily a great thing. It definitely, if they want to call it democratizing <laughs> trading, great. But people don't even know the difference in a call and a put option. And it's just hard for me to see. I mean, they better maintain their, quote, technology status as a tech company, not a broker dealer. But when 60 to 70 percent of all the money that they're making comes from market makers themselves, you know, there's a real engine behind this thing that might not be sustainable. So I agree. They better cross sell into some other categories, you know, spending pay as you go, things like that, because if they don't, you know, I think they're going to be very, very vulnerable. So I just feel bad to Dan's comment before. I mean, We've talked about this before. People go to DraftKings, love the company, but they literally bet on a baseball game and then they'll come out and and they'll they'll trade on Robinhood. And I think they think of those as the same thing. And whether that's buyer beware or not, Robinhood has certainly done a poor job and hopefully they're going to get better at educating the retail investors. So it's going to be fun to watch, but at the same time, I think it's going to be painful to watch. I I hope that, you know, I, I agree with you guys that there's something that goes in to increase the financial literacy of the people that they're on ramping because you've already seen a couple tragedies, you know, and there will be more folks don't understand what they're doing. When I was growing up, Rick, I wanted to be either Bob Tucker, John Rattel, Cassie Russell, or uh, Thurman Munson. Now that shows my age, but a lot of people listening to this want to be Rick Heitzman. Can you speak to the trajectory that got you where you are today? And quite frankly, you know, some of your thoughts for the future. You know, you never know what's going to happen. I think that's one of the great parts of life is, you know, you see what happens, you kind of react to it and you keep going. So, you know, I, I out of school, out of Georgetown, Hoya Saxa, they, uh, I became an investment banker. And then I saw in the early days of the Internet in the mid 90s that, you know, this thing, the you know, this is coming. And, you know, I saw Amazon and said, hey, I want to be able to go away from where I was in doing distressed buyouts more towards the growth side. So I got out to Silicon Valley, uh, worked at a venture firm, went to business school as part of that transition from kind of traditional finance to you know, kind of emerging company finance and did that. And then I uh, was able I had the benefit of being able to start a company. So I started a company, took that company public. Uh, we sold it. Uh, for over a billion dollars back when that was a lot of money as an entrepreneur. 
And then I was thought it was really important that New York is an important part of the global financial system and obviously the startup ecosystem to build a company in New York. So uh, at a time where that was a contrarian idea of building a traditional venture capital company in New York City, myself and a couple of my partners set out to do that probably 15, 17 years ago. And, you know, as we did that, we were able to slowly build kind of brick by brick a brand, a network of entrepreneurs, friends, media partners, and we're able to do that. But I think, you know, starting off, if you wanted to become a venture capitalist, I think the, the couple things that are there that might not have been there before, but you could do is there's a tremendous amount of information that's out there now on the Internet of how to build your brand, how to become a venture capitalist, how to understand and identify companies. That's kind of piece number one. Second piece would be you could probably start investing as an angel investor or at least track companies more so than ever. So if you wound up kind of at my doorstep, you could say, hey, I knew about risk reversal media when they were a small company. And I believe that the future of audio was going to be important. And that was going to be in real time is incredibly important, especially in the financial markets. Therefore, if I had money or had access, I would have invested. So, you know, you're, you're constantly thinking like an investor. And I think, you know, a key part of it, which sometimes gets lost now is, have you been part of a startup team? Do you know what it's like to build something? You know, do you have empathy with entrepreneurs and understanding that most days are much harder in a startup community than they would be in a traditional company. But it's definitely a network and a community of doers and people who would rather make things happen than watch things happen. And, you know, is that part of your DNA also? So I, I think, you know, starting something, whether it being joining a startup or starting your own startup and getting involved as much as you can in that community are kind of key success factors to, you know, maybe being a VC in the medium term as you're a middle-aged guy like me. Well, you know, Rick, you clearly have a lot of foresight in this East Coast, West Coast thing in, in tech, and VC has been raging, um, I think, for, for decades here. Um, but New York City really feels like the center of innovation right now when you think about crypto. Obviously, it's very well-footed here, and, and there's a lot of great innovative tech happening here. So congrats to you for, for seeing that. Listen, we want to thank you for coming on. You've been, obviously, a great friend to us. We were very fortunate to get to know you years ago and, and track your performance. And we're obviously very fortunate to have you as a backer of Risk Reversal Media. So thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back very soon. Thanks a lot, Rick. Hey, thank you very much, guys. I look forward to coming back soon, and I'll, I'll, see, you all, I'll see you all later. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.